Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Johnny Crowder, I probably am not the only person on the planet that talks to this guy and thinks, I'm really special. He really likes me. But I, I really do like Johnny a lot. I would like to just sit in his backyard and like throw a ball to a dog and put my feet up and, and hang out and not talk for a little while and then talk for a little while because I don't know. And we got to meet when I was in a little bit of a curmudgeonly burnout time, and he's just this air of optimism and possibility. So I think he really helped my own mental health during kind of a dark time. This interview was, oh gosh, I guess about 10 months ago. Um, Johnny Crowder's a suicide and abuse survivor. You've probably seen him. He's tatted up, and he's been a TEDx speaker. He's even a rock musician billboard charting rock musician and a certified recovery peer specialist. But what he's most known for is he's the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, which is a text-based mental health platform that provides basically daily support to people um, in over 100 countries around the world. Sometimes the best solutions, the people say this about Sidewalk Talk too, are the easiest ones. And he's basically texting you a tip every day to take care of your mental health. So um, yeah, what a really sweet sweetheart of a guy in a conversation, and I owe him a phone call. Johnny, I owe you a phone call. All right, Johnny Crowder. I, I, I feel when I saw your TED Talk, I'm like, well, damn, I thought I was good at public speaking, but this guy takes the cake, number one. Number two, I'm like, oh, he's so he's so young and full of energy and hope. And I just really admire what you're doing with your energy. Then I went and listened to prison music and then I'm like, damn, he's like a <laughs> rock and roll guy. Then I'm like, I wonder how many tattoos he has. <laughs> that was my next question. I don't even know. <laughs> and then the last thing I went was, I wonder how being a CEO of Cope Notes impacts his mental health. So I just thought I'd tell you that that was the movie role that went through my mind after I watched your TED talk. Yeah. How's that? That is the the last thing. I can't tell what's more intriguing. How many tattoos I have, because I don't, I genuinely have no idea. Or the last question, which is much more front of mind in my day-to-day -day life, I think. Mm. Yeah, we could, you and I could riff on that because I've literally turn sidewalk talk back over to the volunteers because I was giving so much. And unlike Cope Notes, you guys have done some great freaking fundraising, amazing. And leadership is the most impactful mental health 
service offering you can ever make because anybody's BS gets projected onto you. Plus you get called in to give, give, give. And then next thing you know, you're tired, tired, tired. And your mental health, my friends call it toilet head. So yeah. <laughs> I, I like kinda, that. Yeah. So how's your, how's toilet head? I mean, how are you doing with leading the big thing? You guys are uber successful. How are you taking care of you? It is honestly, that is one of the most difficult parts of what I am doing because I would estimate that entrepreneurship is one of the most physically and mentally and emotionally challenging things and spiritually challenging things that anybody could ever embark on. It is like, it is just, I've never heard, ever heard anybody go, it's just so freaking easy. I just pooped out a company and then we, we became a unicorn. Like it, it is true. It's no secret that it is very challenging to do. And I think I'm not leaning on my diagnoses here, but I am saying that as someone who um, spent so many years in treatment and had to work so hard through very deep um, interpersonal and mental and emotional issues for years and years to then have to face, I mean, imagine kind of like, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. Imagine doing like a tough mutter competition where you're like, you know, climbing stuff and you're running, swimming through this muck and you're exhausted and your feet are blistered and stuff. And you come out the other end. And when you get to the finish line, the finish line is the start of the Boston marathon. And you're like, what? No, that's kind of how it felt to start a company after years of treatment. I'm like, no way I'm tired. <laughs> okay. So I know your background. Cause I've, that's kind of how I found you. And mm -hmm yet some of the people listening don't know your background. So just give the high level. What's your relationship to mental illness? Um, we are roommates, I guess Ooh. you could say. Not lovers, but roommates. <laughs> no, um, but we're learning to get along, if that makes sense. Okay. okay. So for people who aren't familiar, I it's kind of like the classic story that you would imagine when you like look at someone like me you're like okay dude works in mental health went to school for psychology covering tattoo i'm missing something here it's it's growing up in an abusive home with drugs and alcohol in it and struggling with schizophrenia bipolar one ocd ptsd like a bunch of different corners of maybe either one giant thing or a bunch of little things and spending years both resistant to treatment and then also fully dependent on treatment, like this really weird combative, like bratty relationship with my clinicians. Um, I was kind of <laughs> like that problem client for years and years. And then you're usually um, my favorite kind, but anyway, yes. And then I went to school for psychology. And I think the, the real thing that started changing the way that I thought about treatment was when I started learning about neuroplasticity and cognitive restructuring. And I was like, wait a second, you're telling me that I can mold my brain like Play-Doh. It might take time, but that I can change my brain to process this stuff differently. And then I might feel differently as a result. And from there, I was like, started getting involved with peer support and public advocacy through NAMI. This was like 10 years ago. And I just became overwhelmed by compassion for people all around me who were just as resistant, who suffered from just as much social stigma and self-stigma. And I was like, dude, 
I have to devote myself to helping people take the first step. Like I'll, I'll never be a doctor. I, I have no interest in being a doctor, but I want to be that person that helps person take, helps people take that like first, second and third step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. I, I don't love the stigma situation. You know, I gave my first TEDx talk a few, few months ago, actually. And I told my suicide story Wow. and, um, one of I was young. I was year, I was twenty three. I'm I'm mm. turning fifty in a few weeks, um, and I got my ass into therapy and realized I didn't even know what a feeling was. It was a whole journey. I'm like, what is wow. a feeling? A body? I have a body. Wow, look at that! I have a body. <laughs> um, but I and and now I've been a therapist practicing for seventeen years. And what I continue to be inspired by, as you talked about, stigma is that I actually find people struggling with mental illness to ha- be having a healthy response to a very sick society. What are your I, thoughts on that statement? <laughs> so I, um, the way that I have expressed my thoughts and feelings about what I've been through, you can kind of like Google your way back and see like, okay, how would Johnny answer this question in like 2012? And then what was Mm. his band saying about it in 2014? And how about this record that came out in 2017? You can kind of see my, my perspective shift as I got older and experienced more. And in 2017, I think uh, my band, my current band prison put out a shirt that said, I'm not crazy. I'm just paying attention. Mm. And it was like one of our fans favorite shirts. Cause they're like, that's how I feel. Like on one hand, I know that I'm experiencing like maybe disordered thought or disordered speech, or maybe I'm, I'm my, my emotional reaction to something isn't necessarily appropriate, but at the same time, I can't shake the feeling that this stimulus that is triggering this, there's something wrong with that. And there has Mm -hmm. to be a middle ground because you can't always excuse on like, if you look at my household growing up, is it my bipolar diagnosis or is it me being hurt by my parents or is it a little bit of both? You know, a lot of times circumstance does have a pretty heavy hand in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like studying neuroplasticity liberated you in some way. Like somehow it's like, okay, the way I'm feeling right now is not a, not a stuck situation. Is that, is that kind of what it was like? You're like, okay, I, I actually am not stuck in this state of feeling that I'm, that I'm in right now. This is hard feeling. So what's, what I find really interesting is that, um, so people who don't know me won't know that I used to bodybuild. So I used to be swole as heck. Really? I leg pressed a thousand pounds in high school. Oh, geez. I was a monster. I was freaking yoked. You were making yourself the Incredible Hulk to to fight away all the monsters. And so that's a huge part of it was I wanted to protect myself from abuse. So I figured if I get super big and strong and scary, then people will leave me alone, start getting tattoos and listening to metal. And I'm sure it was some kind of defense mechanism. But the other part of it was, I find this really fascinating and I haven't thought about it this way, but in high school, I was well aware that I could work to change my body. Mm. I could work, you know, through exercise and diet. I, I fortunately never dipped into steroids, although the temptation was there. And many of my friends and family members used them. And I was like, oh, I really want to. But I knew that through just basic biology, 
if you just learn about how your body works, you can leverage those natural processes to change your body. And for mm -hmm. some reason, it took another five years for me to realize that I could do that for my brain. Like it's common knowledge. People know that you can diet and exercise to change your body, but do people really know that you can learn and practice your way to a healthier brain? I don't know. And so that's what you're doing with Cope Notes. And I got to, I got to hear more about, so I actually just recommended it to a, a teen client of mine um, to check out. Teenagers are hard. You got to use something on the phone. <laughs> you got to use something on the phone. Um but did you start out hoping to build? Did you actually like intentionally go, well, I'm going to build this multi-million dollar big uh, platform to support people in their mental health? Can you tell me a little more about the story? Because <laughs> I well, think it's I, fascinating. I, this might make, this might turn investors off or whatever, but this, yeah, that's but not I, the but What doesn't turn investors off about you is that you're no BS. So don't even <laughs> yeah. pull that crap on me. It's so, your truth that makes them like you. Yeah. So here's, here's the real truth. I've always wanted to be a rock star. My, my dream no. playing guitar and singing. That's my whole dream, my whole life. I, ever since I was a kid, I, I wanted to be a musician. So I always jokingly, half jokingly say that running a tech company is the opposite of being a rock star. It's like legal and finance and HR and, um, SOPs and documentation and data room. Speak in my language, oh, buddy. Dude. So, so when I say that I, I never set out to build a company, what I mean is when I was <laughs> volunteering like 10 years ago, my goal was I want to help people who feel like me feel a little bit better. That was my whole goal. I literally have saved them tattooed on my knuckles. So my whole MO was like, how do I make a positive impact on mm -hmm. other people? And originally that was through peer support. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I couldn't scale peer support. Like we live in a country, dude, where the powers that be have figured out how to scale the distribution of Fruit Loops. To like all the different grocery stores and mm -hmm. all the gas stations and whatever. And we have not figured out how to scale peer support. And I was like, screw that. I, my life has been changed by peer support and I'm going to figure out a way to scale it. What mm. I didn't know is that the way I would scale it is by starting a technology company. In fact, there's the last thing I'll say on it. Cause I'm kind of rambling the, it took a year and a half after I started Cope Notes for a healthcare technology accelerator to approach us to say, we want you to join our healthcare tech accelerator. Or they said, we're looking for healthcare tech companies to join our accelerator. And I'm not even joking. I said, I'll let you know if I meet any. <laughs> and they were like, you are one. So I never, that's how little I intended to start this is that I didn't even know it was a company a year and a half in. Mm. So it's my understanding that it's, I mean, it's peer support insofar as it's, it's, the intelligence of you and other mental health professionals behind the scenes sending a text every day that sort of gets your mind moving in a direction other than suffering or a negative thought spiral. But are you also connecting people in peer support groups too? I, it's a piece that I guess I didn't know. So the, the thinking behind the peer support aspect is here's, here's where peer support has always broken down. And I think a lot of real-time talk therapy has broken down too at scale is like, 
if you have peer support, a lot of times that's one-on-one. Sometimes it might be, you know, there's eight people in a group, six people in a group, 10. Um, But at a certain point, the economy of scale doesn't work in your favor. Like, let's say there's an earthquake and now a ton of people are in need of support. Where are you going to find that many peers to serve? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the thinking was, you know, a lot of places have solved that problem by making a chat bot or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like a a AI robot that tries to string together keywords in a way that makes the person feel listened to. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, that doesn't really feel real to me. So how do we take the personal nature of peer support, that Mm -hmm. like firsthand lived experience component that's so transformative and then deliver it with the scalability of modern tech? Mm -hmm. So all of the messages are written by peers with lived experience, but then they are delivered by an algorithm. Got it. And an algorithm based on what I might be going through or just based on the day? All sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah, there's all sorts of different inputs. Like as you journal back, um, that impacts the types of text that you receive in the future. So it's kind of like, the more you interact with it, the more it, likely the texts are to be relevant to you. It's pretty cool. It learns. It learns. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, my background was in tech before I became a therapist and I sold database software. So actually, surprisingly, I understand wow. some of the crap that you're talking about. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, you know, so many of the folks that listen are, are connectors. And I have often believed, you know, I used to have this sort of, I think you and I might share this even, I used to sort of secretly have this wish that, God, could we get enough people listening on the sidewalk that we could put therapists out of business? <laughs> there was like this underlying, I know that's terrible because I'm a therapist and I don't mean to, and I used to piss off other therapists, so I had to stop saying that, but clearly I say I believe it. But I do think that human connection goes a long way towards our mental health too, And I'm just curious what you've learned about, I don't know, your own needs for human connection. And uh, as my friend Stephanie says, uh, fast food connecting versus, you know, meaningful, healthy connecting and and, and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And maybe even what Cope Notes offers people, because I imagine it offers some some support around that too. I would say... So I'll answer that from two different lenses. The the Cope Notes lens, which I'm sure listeners are, are... interested in, but maybe not as interested as like the personal lens, the, through the cope notes lens, it's the consistency. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, imagine, let's say you're a parent, for example, this is actually something that we've heard, um, subscribers speak to us about before in testimonials. They'll say, you know, I am trying to support my daughter. She's 19 years old. She is engaging in some really destructive behaviors. I try to help. She ignores me. Why do I even try to help? And they'll say something like, yeah, I used to text her every day and then I just kind of stopped because she was ignoring me and then I felt hurt. And that human element of, you know, like my daughter slammed the door on me. I'm not going to text her tomorrow. Like I'm hurt. I need Mm -hmm. to recuperate and I'm frustrated. If that interrupts consistency, Mm -hmm. that sense of unconditional support is compromised, not because the parent is a bad parent, but because Mm -hmm. the parent is a human being who just experienced rejection. Mm -hmm. So Cope Notes says, you can slam the door on us every single day for three and a half years. You could text back, this is so stupid. I don't even know why I use this. You could chew us out. You could not text us back for months at a time, and we will be there the next day. Mm. And that level of almost like supernatural consistency 
and support, like not feeling scorned or spurned by those negative outbursts. I can't tell you how many times I lashed out at a friend or family member. And then when they didn't talk to me for a day, I'd say, there's my proof that they never loved me anyway. And that interruption and consistency, I leveraged as evidence that I wasn't important, that we didn't have a good relationship. And I wanted to design Cope Notes to have the consistency that a real human relationship could never have. Mm. I love that. As somebody who does a lot of work around attachment and complex PTSD, I love that. I love that answer, Johnny. Thank you a lot. The The, the human answer is probably much less thought through. <laughs> But it's going to be way more fun though, huh? Yeah. The uh, Honestly, something that Cope Notes has taught me, like running Cope Notes has taught me about my personal needs for like relationship and support. Um, without getting too far into it, maybe at some point by the time the person is listening to this, I will have made some kind of statement about it. But I had a very serious uh, family emergency in the end of 2021. Um, like the Q4, like October, November, December, and into January. Um, and I'm still going through it. Mm. It's like, it's the it's the most serious thing I've experienced this decade. Mm. Um, a very serious like crisis and tragedy and just so many different things collapsing as a result of this like implosion with that happened in my family. And what I learned as someone who has spent four years building a company to help other people is that I have neglected interpersonal relationships with people I know and love. Like who, who comes to your aid in a family emergency? Your friends. But if I haven't been seeing my friends or responding to their text messages because I'm too busy building a company, then when Pooh hits the fan, you realize that the thing you've spent the last four years investing in can't help you. My Cope Notes can't drive over and bring me some pizza and sit on my couch and talk to me about what's going on. Like I've spent years investing in something that couldn't help me through Mm -hmm. what I'm going through right now. And it really woke me up. Like I need to get some balance back into my, my social life and friends. I need mm -hmm. to start investing in friendships way more. Yep. Oh man. I've, I've been through that with this project for sure. Yeah. And I have two kids. So on top of that, I've got kids that I could easily neglect and a, and a really mm. cute husband that I really like still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm sorry to hear about this tragedy. And I hope I'm wishing you, wishing you well as you navigate the metabolizing of that. Yeah. Dude, it's definitely sobering because also like, I mean, you'll be able to experience or you'll be able to relate to this experience. If you're like the mental health person and then something happens in your life, like loss or grief or something like that, and you're like, oh no, I need someone to hug me. And you almost feel like you, you're like, I should be able to be this for myself. Like I should be able to hug myself. And it's this weird kind of like reality check where it's like, you're still a, just a regular old person who has the same needs as anybody else when they go through something like this. It's very, okay. it's very sobering. So 
my TEDx talk was actually in reaction to a similar moment that I reached with sidewalk talk. Mm. And, and so it really formed the entire, I changed the talk partway through much to the chagrin of the conference organizers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, on embracing our neediness. Oh yeah. That we are in fact human and we do have these needs for getting a hug and having someone put their arm around us. You know, there was this guy that used to stand out front of my office in San Francisco and I can't, Oh, my best friend had passed away. And Tony Mm. was the security guard out front of chase and Tony and I were buddies. I mean, I'd worked in that building for seven years. We said, good morning, every morning. And one morning he could see on my face, he says, sweetheart, he called me sweetheart. You don't, you don't look so good today. And I always hugged him. And he just went like this and he just put his arms around me. And I just let myself sob on this poor security wow. guard's jacket. And I just cried. And I said, oh, I felt really good. Thank you. <laughs> That's Can you amazing. imagine if we walked around and we could do that with people more often? Dude, you know, what's weird is I often feel like I was walking in an area of Tampa called Hyde Park, which is like a really beautiful area. And I always walk there because it's close to the water. So I went there just to literally just to go on a walk. And um, I saw this girl sitting down crying. And by girl, I mean like my age, like 20s or 30s. And I went and I like wanted to go sit down next to her, but then she was on the phone. And then I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm intruding by going to sit down or like, I don't know if she wants company. And I so badly, there was like this, this 99% of me, it's like, just go sit there. And you don't have to do anything. You just sit there and just be with her in that moment. She's all by herself. And then I was like, I don't want to be like a creep or like, you know, Mm. scare her or make things worse. And then I wanted to feel like someone's listening in. So I just walked away. And ever since that moment, I've been thinking like, why the heck is it so difficult for people to like show other people like basic human decency without Mm -mm. the anxiety of like, am I coming off the wrong way. There's a balance, right? Like you don't want to intrude, but you want to support. Even if you don't know the person, when you see someone hurting, you're like, oh, what can I do? There's a guy whose energy is so similar to yours. And he wrote a book on this and you guys should just, you guys are like from the same litter or something. I don't know, but (laughs) his name is Joe Keohane. And he wrote this book called the power of strangers. And he's kind of, he's kind of like, psychologically and anthropologically nerdy like you and that he's pretty well educated. He's, he's actually like taken up this question. Why do we mm-hmm. avoid strangers? And I, you'd get off on his book if you ever want to pick it up by the Thank audio you. version. Cause it's, it's his voice and he's so charismatic and magnetic. And I just, yeah, he was on the podcast too. He's, it's a great, oh, so it's a cool. great read. And it's gotten lots of, lots of pickup in the last few months. So it's worth checking out. Um, Wow. Really cool. So where are you now? What's the scoop? Are you like married? Do you have kids? Do you still live in Florida? Uh, is Cope Notes International was another question I had on my list or is it only in the U.S.? Yeah. So personal, professional. Okay. So the last question is easiest because it's a yes or no. So Cope Notes is international. We actually just hit our 95th country. Woo. So we had a user in North Macedonia sign up last week. Um, Congratulations. We're we're all over the place. We launched the international program like two, a little over two years ago, two and a half years ago. 
Um, so it's been growing and that's pretty cool. As far as the personal stuff, I'm like, so both my brothers are married and have kids and it's like, they definitely did like the normal thing. And then my mom must look at me like, okay, dude's torn around in a metal band, collecting sneakers, getting tattoos. Like, are you ever going to be an adult? And I've been single. actually, I have been single for, um, almost, I think it was a little over seven years. Mm. I was single. And it was because around the time that my parents were divorcing, I experienced sexual abuse for about a year mm. from someone who was significantly older than me. And from that moment, like dealing with watching my parents' relationship dissolve and then experiencing that, the, the combination of those things, I was like basically rendered what felt like asexual. Like I just couldn't look at women in a way like I didn't look at a woman and think like wow she's beautiful I would just think like that is a person mm -hmm. these are all people and it like took years and years for me to get the first time I thought a girl was pretty was like five years after that happened was mm -hmm. when I could start being like I remember I saw someone at the gym and I'm like wow she's gorgeous and I was like what we need to go celebrate like that's huge but of course I was in therapy for all of this and I did the Richard's trauma process which was massively helpful for me. Mm. Um, and I actually only just recently, this is an inside sidewalk talk scoop. Um, Cause I haven't really told anybody, but I started dating someone like three months ago. Oh, congratulations. It's, it's the first, it's like a massive interpersonal victory for me. Cause I, I really thought I would never be able to be in a relationship again. And, um, I now have a girlfriend, which is like unreal to me. Aww, it's like kind of unimaginable, but I'm still learning. Like I have to Google like how to be a good boyfriend, like how to be attentive as a partner. Like I don't freaking remember any of this stuff. So I'm, I'm, I, it feels like it's my first relationship all over again because I'm mm. having to learn like, what are my physical bound? Like, how do I feel about holding hands as someone who was in treatment for OCD? and who mm -hmm. didn't want to touch people's hands at all. Mm -hmm. How do I feel about eating after someone, which spoiler alert, I do not do that. And my girlfriend is like, what's your problem? And I'm like, I just can't. <laughs> so I'm like learning what those boundaries are for me. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like good, normal relationship stuff. I mean, it's the biggest spiritual psychological project you'll take up is being yeah, in a relationship. You're... Yeah. And I was just sitting around here. So bored, like, man, I need another great big project. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's hopefully some, some, something that comes back. Like you get, oh, secure, yeah. you get a secure base, you become one another's champions. I believe the relationship done well, you get one plus one equals three rather than one plus one equals two couples yeah. is my specialty. So now you're really speaking my, my, my mother was married six times. So that's wow. the that's the reason why I'm a couples therapist for Did a living. Did she get her sixth one free? On the <laughs> I asked card? her. I said, "Do you have to marry them all?" And she said, yeah. "I believe in the <laughs> sanctity of marriage." Wow! Like, but six times. Yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah. So that's that's my my backstory. But congratulations, lucky her and lucky you. That's great. And I'm, um, I'm really thankful too because it's it's kind of the only type of relationship I think I could be in because actually. So we tried to date a couple of years ago, and this goes back to like, what's it like 
for your mental health running a company. Because I met her over two years ago and we couldn't date because I didn't have time. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wasn't texting her back. We would see each other once every couple of weeks and it's just hard to build a relationship that way. Yeah. And then now when we reconnected, she was like, I understand that you're, you don't have as much time as like a quote normal person would because you're building something. And I was like, I understand that I underestimated how much time and attention it requires to build a relationship mm. intentionally. So we kind of met in the middle where mm. we're not talking and see each other a ton, but we're also making sure that we maintain the consistency necessary to actually build something healthy. So we kind yeah. of like, we, I don't feel that we compromised because I feel like we're both getting what we wanted. It's just, we're much more considerate of the other person than we were two years ago. I hope lots of people who are starting companies heard this last piece, because I think that people don't realize that, that actually, I, my, my, <laughs> actually I'm doing something online called the couple's double date. Cause not every couple needs therapy. They just need other, they need peer support <laughs> with other couples. Right? I love that so much. And what I said is, let's be honest, you spend more freaking time cleaning out the backseat of your car than you do tending your relationship. And so when you acknowledge, I don't care that it doesn't look like leave it to Beaver or the Brady Bunch, <laughs> it doesn't have to, but just the consciousness that relationships do take some tending is a yeah. huge evolution already. And, and I hope that lots of people that are listening, they, that registers for them. It's not like you have to be perfect. I don't believe in perfection. But just a little bit of consciousness goes a long way. So, yeah, we, I actually got her, uh, hopefully this comes out after her birthday, but I got her a, um, a book that we're going to read together, actually, which is like, it's something like, um, healthy mental and emotional habits for successful relationships or something. And it's something that we're going to like read out loud and discuss with each other. And this is like a freaking, like a workbook and we're only a few months in, but if you're that intentional from the start about like, I want to take good care of this kind of like, if you get a plant, probably the first thing you do is Google, like, how do I take care of this plant? And that's really what we're trying to do from day one with this. That's awesome. That's awesome. I wish I would have done that for starting a company, <laughs> how to be healthy, starting a company. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a, that's a book. Maybe that's I a book you and I can write together. I promise you I will write that thing. Let's go. We'll alternate chapters. I work with a lot of tech executives and founders. So that's mm -hmm. kind of my clientele now. So yeah, and there's some interesting research that shows that people that found companies usually have a pretty effed up family history. I believe it. Yeah, they they sort of like that drama and that intensity and that having their nervous system yanked all over the place and feeling like they're on the razor's edge of you know, dying or failing or being the best or, you know, all those things. For me, for me, honestly, all I crave is like comfort and calm and quiet because touring for so long, it's like loud and chaotic and metal shows. So I, I really value like things being uneventful, but I'll say this, there is a huge part of me that wants to feel worth it or like important or valuable or like I matter. So I, I would, if I really wanted to like analyze my fierce pursuit of changing the world, it is half because I have a deep empathy for people who are just feeling the same kind of suck that I am, but there has to be some component in there that I'm not aware of. That's like, 
wanting to feel like it's a good thing that I was born, you know? Well, hot damn. That was like super vulnerable. That's deep, deep stuff. I, I said, <laughs> I said last year, I can't remember what I was talking to. I was talking to a buddy and I said, you don't, you don't become Kanye West because you're happy. Mm. Right. Like you don't, you don't start a sneaker brand and become a multi-platinum selling artist and then do run for office and stuff. No, no happy, well-adjusted person would probably go to those lengths to accomplish things. There has to be, and I don't know the guy, um, but I just can't help but think that there's some thing in creative people or in ambitious people that says like, if I could just show myself that I am important, then I could rest. Mm. It's, it's weird. Like we overwork ourselves in pursuit of rest because we want to mm. feel that we've earned the right to rest. Interesting. I have another friend that does a project where he has you write the, the, the biggest secret, the thing that you're most longing to have seen on a piece of cardboard and stand on a sidewalk and have everybody read it. Like, wow. I'm scared that I don't matter would be yours. Yeah. And you just out yourself and you do that with a few other people. It's really fascinating. I literally um, have you matter tattooed on my neck. Oh, so that nice. On the, on the back of my neck so that other people can read it when they're behind me in line or when I'm, you know, drinking from a water fountain or something. That's how top of mind this is for me is like, yeah. I want other people to feel like they matter. And it's like, that has to come from something yeah. deeper inside of me, you know? Yeah. Well, it sounds like what you're wrestling with and where you're headed is you're moving that from being signified on the outside that somebody else conveys it to you through the great speaking you do through developing cope notes and leading it to on mm -hmm. the inside that I actually believe it and I deserve it and I feel it and Oof. I can be loved for it and I can give love from it. Yeah. Deserve and enough are two mm. words that I have a really hard time with. Ooh, like well, if hang I, out with me for a while. We'll I get deserved <laughs> nice. If I felt like I deserved nice things and I was enough and mm. I've done enough, mm. I would be the most chill human being on the planet. I think those are like the two keys to unlocking like stasis. Mm. And I, I am, I am ironically enough, I am pursuing those things, <laughs> which is hilarious. Aren't we all? I mean, I think, yeah. I think that some of these things we pursue until we go to the dirt, you know, mm -hmm. we just, um, I don't know that we all get there, but you know, my, my family member who's, who's passed, she's, she was in her eighties and she said, you know, I just really wish some of these old folks around here had gone to analysis because they're just complaining and bitching about getting old. She goes, I went to analysis. I figured all that stuff out. She said, I'm just having a good time. I wish they had done that. So they were already here. They wow. could just have fun. I'm like, I love that frame of reference. That's so cool. Oh, we need to She's... bottle that so I, I can buy it off a shelf. I have her rocking chair upstairs in my house because I was so I enamored what of her. Having. <laughs> yeah, totally. Listen, I know we're at the end of our time and it's gone by too fast. Um, yeah. you ever, you ever, ever need any relationship tips, you call me up anytime, Johnny. Email Please. me, text me, no matter what. Um, but this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. This started, I don't know, we, we interviewed Rick Hansen years ago, um, who's a Buddhist psychologist guy in the Bay Area. And we started asking our guests to speak directly to our, our listeners around the world, either words of wisdom 
or a wish. And it doesn't have to be clever. I had, we had somebody sing a song once. We had somebody tell a joke once. We had somebody cry once. So I don't know. It could be ridiculous what comes out of your mouth, but whatever you feel called, either as a wish or words of wisdom to the listeners that sit on sidewalks. I really think that the the you matter sentiment would solve 90% of human suffering. Like if we actually believed that we met, I mean, believed it, internalized it. Like if we, all of us actually believed that we mattered, that we were like the only version of us. Because for years when I was suicidal, it was in large part due to the fact that I didn't want to hurt anymore. And I thought that if I wasn't around, things would be the same. Like nobody would even notice. But if I actually felt like I mattered, if everybody felt like they mattered, then losing a job takes on a different shape. Losing a relationship takes on a different form. The way we interpret things like financial hardship or relational troubles, if we actually felt like we mattered and we stuck up for ourselves in those situations, suffering would be minimized drastically. So the, the thing that I want to say to everybody is the thing that I tattooed on the back of my neck, hoping that everybody would read, which is just two words, you matter. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So for those of you that are listening, you can find out more about Johnny. You can find out more about Cope Notes. I highly recommend if you're a therapist listening to this, a great service to send your clients to. Um, they even have an affiliate link on their website. So you can send clients if you're somebody who... Um, maybe as a coach, the therapist can't get, take affiliate money. It's a, it's a dual relationship, but, mm-hmm. but uh, coaches can. Um, it's actually a great service um, to have, to hold, especially young people, I feel like right now, I, I've really sent a lot of young people to Pope Notes. And then also to, to tell her more about prison, <laughs> your <Yes>. band. <laughs> Definitely. The, so what I always say is if you're not a metal person, it's okay because I'm sure you've heard a polka song before and you're not a polka person. So just give it a shot Um, on Spotify or Apple music, wherever you find your music, the band is called prison and we have an album called still alive. Um, And I think the, the title track from that record is a pretty representative one. It's about choosing to continue living um, even as someone who's battling suicidal ideation, just choosing like, you know what, one more day, I'm sticking around for one more day. Gorgeous. Thanks for being here, Johnny. It was great to bring you to our listeners. Bring you to our this listeners. was fun. My butt yeah. hurts from sitting on the sidewalk. I need to stretch it out. <laughs> All right. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.